Hey, welcome back to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the Dr. Steph Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefano Bini, your host for this podcast series and the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. This is the second lecture on interoperability and data. And for this talk, we asked Davide Vigano, co-founder and CEO of Sensoria Health, a company specifically focused on patient monitoring, to talk to us. This is partly because Davide also had experience as the uh, person who led some of Microsoft's most interesting ventures into the whole digital health space, specifically around the patient health record. Let's join Davide on the DocSF 2022 stage. So we ended with the discussion, and he started the discussion also of the patient owning their data, the patient owning the data and be able to share the data and making it accessible to entities. And it was also interesting to hear about the fact that at some point we'll, give, we'll grant access to that data to other entities. So to follow Tate's discussion with an absolutely perfectly placed speaker, because our next speaker spent uh, 20, 23 years at Microsoft and during that time, he actually led the Health Vault initiative, which was one of the first efforts at creating the personal, personal um, data, oh, losing it, the personal health record is what I was trying to say. Uh, since then, he co-founded uh, a Light Vantage, an incubator, which he ran for some time until he decided to run his own company again, and this time a Sensory Health. So the, to, the, uh, to David uh, Davide Vigano, te invito sul palcoscenico. <laughs> Grazie. <laughs> I got it, I got it. Oh, Thank okay. you, Stephen. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to be here. And I think Tate did a masterful job in the last 20 minutes to actually walk through the major, what he called, buckets of interoperability, right? So there is a regulatory bucket, there is an economic bucket, and there is a technology bucket. So on a Thursday afternoon after, after lunch, you may ask yourself now, why should I care? Depending on whether you are an orthopedic surgeon whether you work in a technology company, why is interoperability important to you or not? So I will try in the next uh, 20 minutes to actually walk you through and see uh, you know, what we have learned in the past 15 years and hopefully move forward in the next, uh, in the next, uh, to the next level and potentially making new mistakes and trying not to replicate the same mistakes that we have made in the past. So we launched at Microsoft, still, I still say we after, 20, over 20 years at Microsoft, we launched HealthVault in 2007. HealthVault was designed to be a patient-centric record, a platform before Azure and AWS even existed. So we had to create our own cloud system because there was no cloud system to speak of at that time. So you can imagine the technology challenges that we had faced. We delivered HealthVault in 2009, and uh, Microsoft completely retired the product in 2019. Why? This is an article from HIT Consulting uh, that actually I think summarized uh, the downfall of Health Vault, if you will. There were multiple reasons, but clearly there are three main reasons why Health Vault did not succeed. Number one, the data that we could collect was very, very limited, primarily from a patient. Patients don't like to wear medical devices. We interface about 425 medical devices just to, just to learn that there was no data coming through. People say one thing, but they do another, right? I see some people smiling in this, uh, in this audience, right? We all do to some extent, right? Number two, we have some data that simply we're not generating. We need data that doesn't exist out there. 
We call them novel data sets. And number three, we have a massive, massive data quality issue. Even when we find the data, the data sucks. Very often, is the wrong data. So at Microsoft at that time, we spent a substantial, substantial time of, amount of time and investment to create another code base that we called Amalga. And Amalga was designed to basically suck the data out of any type of EHR system, any type of silo at the enterprise level, get this data, both DICOM and HL7 data, into some type of data repository that at this charge, a hospital could actually push a button and send all these images and data into my own personal health record funded and designed on Health Vault. This was a revolutionary approach that created substantial, we had substantial support from Mayo Clinic, NYP, Providence, at that time, St. Joe's here in California and so forth. People, large enterprise companies, actually visionary ones, bought into it. But other social, social and economic, social economic factors prevailed. In the US, and not outside the US as an example, employers resist putting data into any type of PHR because they're really concerned about their employer knowing about their personal health record. I can tell you there is the level of concern in Europe is not even as close as it is in the US, but in the US, it's a real issue. People have that concern, right? So we had to build a system that was granular enough and as state mentioned, who can I give access to my data to and under which rules. So the regulatory aspect is just one of the aspects. The social and economic aspect is as challenging and as big as well. There is always a trusted advisor when it comes to data liquidity. It can be my clinician, it can be my caregiver, it can be a family member. Those are trusted advisors that I may want to grant access to only for a part of my personal health record. I may not want them to know if I went through a total arthroplasty, that I also have some neurology issues. My decision may be relevant information, may be relevant data, but I don't want them to know. And it's my data, and therefore, I should be able to do that. So what is data liquidity at the end? Data liquidity is a vision and a journey. And that's probably the only reason why all of you here should care about it. So real data liquidity is obviously complex for the reasons that we discussed in the past 20 minutes. And as you can see here, I'm not even going to try to actually walk you through what a novel architecture for interoperability looks like. What matters in this architecture, which by the way is the one that we actually use at Sensoria as well, is uh, what Tate described as interoperability at the core through the Fire API. There is no excuse today to leverage core assets such as Fire to ensure the reduction of paper records and enable real data liquidity. On top of that, companies like Microsoft and Amazon are now providing this type of product as a service. What I mean is, Tate mentioned before, is a challenge to go into the IT of a hospital and you know, find agreement and create consensus on building who's going to actually build that interface, who's gonna maintain that interface. So these companies are going now to actually provide that server as a service for interoperability and maintain that service, which of course reduces and removes some of the operational challenges, organizational challenges, bureaucratic challenges that we discussed in the past. But again, 
Why should I, if I'm an orthopedic surgeon, care about this? Well, you I would argue that you should care about this because everything you do to improve your performance and you improve your efficiencies and improve outcomes should probably be based on a model that is similar to the one I'm proposing here. This is a very simplistic model. You probably have a better one, right? But at the end of the day, for each patient that you see, you have a T1, T2, T3, and T4, different times where you baseline your patient, you have a pre-surgery baseline, then you have surgery, and then you have a post-surgery type of operation, right? So for each one of these, you have to basically create a personalized medicine type of model. In Europe, thanks to an FTI European Union grant, we're working with a company like Rejoint, which is building an additive manufacturing personalized knee from scratch using Formula One Ferrari-like 3D printing technology with cobalt chrome personalized to the knee of the patient. We're working with companies like OrthoKey that actually design sensors for the alignment of the prosthetic device during surgery. And what we do at Sensoria, we baseline and we monitor the post-op post -op rehabilitation process, right? So the full system in 2022 looks more like the left of this slide, right? I'm asking myself questions that I'm not able to answer because I don't have the right data to answer those questions. Hopefully before <laughs> 2035, we will be able to actually do what you see on the right side. I'm asking myself questions. I'm able to find the data that actually can provide the foundation to answer those questions, and I can answer those questions correctly to improve my performance and improve outcomes and reduce cost and increase access for the whole healthcare system. So there is, of course, a very broad cost implication on that. So the smart surgery engine, if you will, the patient journey can be designed on data that exists, that comes from EMRs, and also novel data sets that come from sensors combined into a unique protocol that can improve the performance of the surgeon, improve the performance of the physical therapist, base the data on quantified data, not just a CUS score after surgery, as an example, and move from there. So to do that, Google, Sensoria, Microsoft, we are IoT enabling multiple devices, right? We realize that self-reported patient data is not sufficient anymore. What you see here is two IMUs on a, on a, on a knee brace that can provide range of motion of a knee. We don't need, there is no need to ask a patient, did you do your rehab? How many repetitions did you do? The, the, the sensors can tell us that, right? So Cleveland Clinic just published two papers in uh, Journal of Arthroplasty proving the fact that this actually provides higher adherence because the patient knows that someone who cares is monitoring him or her. So we have higher adherence on rehabilitation as well. Of course, the patient likes that, that approach because he can also be part of its own, or her, of, of, of its own uh, health process and health journey, right? So uh, the range of motion and so forth can actually be Fitbit-like enabled with specific data sets that are specific to the rehabilitation process. But we can go beyond that. We can replace and extend GateLab systems using new wearable devices that are not new at all. We can just inject sensors into whatever the patient decides to wear in the morning, like a simple sock. The socks has three textile pressure sensors at the bottom of the, of the plantar area of the, of the foot. I encourage you to look for the University of Sherbrooke in Canada. They actually designed a full independent study based on extending the gate lab 
of their aging clinics using an IMU and the three textile pressure sensors in the SOC, and they found that the gate quality lab system data that they're collecting from the SOC is on par or better than the clinical data that they get from the gate labs. Of course, gate labs cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? There are mocks and cameras around. A SOC can be provided to a patient at home, and the, and the SOCs are less than $200. Beyond that, of course, we know that weight-bearing and double support is crucial after a total knee arthroplasty. How do we measure that? So now combining the data, the self-reported data, and the quantified data coming from knee braces and socks and insoles and so forth, we clearly have a much better picture of where our patient is, right? So that's, that's really our goal. But that's not sufficient. There are multiple other areas that need to help us identify which patient we're actually working with. Is this patient a patient that I need to empower because he's able to use this technology? Is this a patient that I need to support or encourage? Is this patient that is questioning why I'm asking him to do, right? I'm pretty sure that if you're in clinical practice, you probably have met each one of these patients <laughs> before, right? So technology will not be able to answer all of the questions for us. Your knowledge and your experience will be simple, simply based on more powerful, more meaningful data and once you actually can collect this type of data, the quantified data and the self-reported patient data can, bake, can make and uh, create a much more powerful patient-clinician interaction. I can tell you that uh, from my experience, we have clinicians now that ask specific questions like, John, what happened on Wednesday? You were not able to do what you were supposed to on Wednesday. And on Wednesday, a patient in this case, a diabetic patient with foot-related complications, was saying, well, I was not able to use my device, in this case with an offloading boot, because I have to go and catch a bus. Well, if a podiatrist knows, he can actually prescribe a scooter, right? But if the podiatrist doesn't know, he cannot do what he's supposed to do to actually fix and accommodate or solve that specific issue. In that case, the lack of mechanical offloading on a, on a, on a diabetic ulcer leads to an amputation 75% of the time. Just that issue, just that complication costs the US healthcare system $17.5 billion a year. There is no reason why we should amputate people, I would argue, for normal plantar ulcerations in this country anymore. We're still going through medieval practices because we don't have the data. So you should care. You should have the data. And it's our job as technology players to provide you with the right data at the right time because your time is precious. So that's really all I had for you. It's really by, all about human augmentation, if you will. I think you will hear about robotics. Uh, robotics and soft robotics is really all coming in the next 10 to 15 years, and it will help us a lot uh, to actually solve some of these challenges. But uh, with that, I'd love to open it up to your questions if you have any. We have, still have two minutes. Thank you. Outstanding. Thank you so much. We went from big data, huge data, and then asked the question, even if we do aggregate that data, access data, is that sufficient to give us the kinds of insight we need to get down to the, um, the personalized medicine future that we're all hoping to get to? Where, I've actually, as you know, I've been working on a very similar concept of how do you bring the gate lab down to something that we can access all the time everywhere. Where do you see uh, the, the greatest application for personalized data that is gate-level data in an, uh, for, for ma patient management? Um, 
we obviously have some ideas, but you're looking at it from a different perspective. So no, it's, a great, it's a great question. Parkinson's, uh, we think that there is both a diagnostic and interventional application. We're working very closely with the Michael J. Fox Foundation on that. We have a full clinical trial in Australia right now going on. It's, it's, it's fascinating how Tesla-like electric motors positioned at the ankle bone level can potentially reduce the risk of falls. So imagine a system where when, once we have the right data, meaningful data, not a lot of data, but meaningful data that can actually train the algorithms, the machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence algorithms, which we cannot train right now because we don't have that quality data. It's amazing what we can do. Instead of, instead of just dispatching an ambulance when that patient is on the, on, the, on the ground, now we can tell that patient through Alexa, sit down now, you're about to fall. How many of you, <laughs> when I asked that question, thought he was going to say total knee replacement or something like that? I, I don't know how many of you were thinking of collecting data from sensors <laughs> to educate a robot that helps you walk, bypassing the whole clinical environment together. So that's, that's the beauty of bringing together technologists and clinicians together to talk about things because there's a different perspective. Most of us in the space of digitizing gate are thinking more perioperative, but the ability to connect this data set to other sources of uh, use, such as, as you pointed out, helping somebody overcome this kinetic function is really, really exciting. Absolutely. I mean, that is exactly, I mean, this is a multidisciplinary problem by design, right? Gate as a science was defined by the Germans and the Italians in the mid-1600s. Isn't it interesting that 2022, and we still don't have a way to measure real, I mean, counting steps means really nothing, right? That's so right. quality of quality data. Quality data is what we're talking about. So that's, that's, right. what, that's what we're Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023, when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.